Hello everybody, uh, welcome to um, Borough Talks, a rather special edition of Borough Talks. We've been running a series of um, discussions all about food and food culture and we have um, squeezed another one in because it's about an issue which is very timely and very important. Um, I am your host of Borough Talks, Angela Clutton, a food writer and cook and historian um, and I, it's my pleasure today to be chairing this talk. Um, before we invite our lovely panel to uh, reveal themselves, um, just a little bit of housekeeping that all of you who are watching your videos are off and you are muted um, if you have any issues technical can't hear us can't see us whatever use the chat function and somebody will be able to help hopefully sort you out um, if you have any questions to ask of our panel use the Q&A function on zoom and we will collate the questions and ask um, those of our panel at the end um, so I think we should get going and um, if our lovely panel can can reveal themselves start the videos unmute and we will do some we'll do some introductions so hello everybody so we have uh, professor tim lang professor of food policy at city university of london we have Annette batters a farmer and president of the national farmers union we have tom parker bowles award-winning food writer and a champion of producers across the country and darren hennehan who is the md of Borough Market. Um, before we get into the nitty-gritty, I'm just going to give um, a brief overview of what it is we're here to talk about, which is the Agriculture Bill, which is currently making its way through the House of Lords. It's already been through the House of Commons, um, and it is an issue with the, many issues, really, with the bill, which all stakeholders across the food industry are very engaged in and really wanting to take advantage of this once-in-a-generation opportunity really, to kind of shape this bill to any extent that we can and to deal with the problems that may be already in the bill. Um, we're going to think about food standards, we're going to think about food security, we're going to think about our food future. There's a lot to get through in the hour that we have, um, so we will try and skip through things and we give all of you who are watching hopefully a good insight into what the meat of this is. Um, I'm going to start with you, Darren, if you don't mind, because it's very interesting, I think, that Borough Market have chosen to give a platform to this discussion about the Agriculture Bill. Could you just maybe give an insight into, into why this matters so much for Borough Market? Well, yeah, and I think our normal approach at Borough Market, and this is slightly unusual territory for us to actually speak out about something, is that we would normally lead by example. Um, and indeed, with the Borough Talks uh, series, they're normally much more around engaging, uh, around positive things and the lovely parts about food. Um, so when I say leading by example, things, things like the work that we did on water fountains um, uh, and moving the market to plastic free, which then created a whole lovely cascade effect. But the agriculture bill has got some really nice bits in it. I think there's some great bits about sort of soil management and things like that. And, you know, others are more qualified to talk on that uh, than I am. But some of the, the reaction to it when very sensible amendments have been put forward has been real sort of like shout at the telly madness. You know, we are very, very, very close to being at risk of making a series of decisions that are going to unpick you know, tens of years of good work and take generations to put back together again to something sensible. You know, the, the bill's in the House of Lords at the moment. So that's why we think the timing's right right now to have this discussion to try and influence that debate. And what it just further proves, even in the, the, the good debate they're having in that, in that chamber, is the complete absence of food policy, a, a food strategy, a food plan, or to be frank, even a few words written on the back of a beer mat suggesting the way in which this is supposed to be going. And you have things like, you know, gene editing apparently is something that's suddenly come onto the agenda. And I don't, you know, I personally don't know what that's about. And I don't think the public know what that's about. And that's why it's so important, I think, that we have this discussion now. Why the government are behaving like this, I think, falls into two reasons. The first thing is, is that food has never been good news in British politics. Um, I think the last positive thing they did, ironically, with joining the common market back in the 70s, you know, it's been a series of disasters since then from, you know, even Edwina Curry turning up and being brave enough to say, hey, hold on, we might have a problem with salmonella and eggs, right the way through foot and mouth, obviously BSC and, and you know, Gummer trying to feed his child a, a burger. It's been nothing but bad news. And I think, you know, government of all political persuasions have seen food as this hot potato uh, that they don't want to get anywhere near. Um, 
And then the second reason is, and it sort of it sort of relates to you know many people know I grew up on a beef farm. It relates to kind of the role of agri business in food, uh, and the lobbying that happens within that, particularly in the states, because so much of the work that goes on in food, if we've been able to blame Brussels for it, it's like you know that's the reason why we've got a buttermilk, that's why we've got a wine lake, and we've been able to blame Brussels for it. Whereas now all of a sudden, British politics needs to make a decision and needs to make a decision quickly. And the role of agribusiness, you know, it came very home to me when I was a child because I grew up on a farm in the 70s and 80s. We were beef farmers and we had a, uh, a rep come in trying to sell my dad Ralgro. We actually went to a, was it a young farmers thing. Um, young farmers are always good fun. It's a great place where, where young people like me go on and try and find a, a future farming mate. And um, the guy came in and said, and this was right the height of, of the, you know, the whole debate around hormones in beef, and said, it's absolutely safe. You could sit down in front of me and eat an entire plate of it, and it'd be absolutely fine. And the strength of those businesses, the, uh, the strength of the lobbying that our politicians are receiving is so, so strong. And that's why we think that Borough Market is a potential alternative voice a voice where we bring the city back and the countryside together in the market space um, is the right place to start yeah. doing some of this debate and helping our politicians find another narrative. <clears throat> Darren, um, that's a lovely insight into why, um, why the market are uh, giving this platform. Um, one of the things which has been um, actively talked about in the campaigning around this um, is about food standards. Um, and Minette, you have been um, doing so much work uh, with your petition and things. And the standards is something which the public, I think, really uh, hook onto as being an aspect of this. But I wonder then if you can just tell us a little bit more about what's happening in the bill about a few standards and what that means from a farming perspective. We'll come on to how that relates to producers and consumers. But just to get the farming perspective on that, on that standards issue. Well, thank you, and thanks for the great opportunity to be part of, of this panel. Uh, and you're absolutely right, standards is, is at the forefront of, of this, and indeed it is actually the forefront and will dictate, if you like, our, our journey as we negotiate um, future free trade agreements. And it is really actually quite straightforward. Um, if we tie our farmers' hands to the highest rung of the ladder, you'll have heard very strong commitments both publicly and privately from the Prime Minister and indeed many, many others about maintaining our standards and in many cases having higher standards here. The challenge is with the food that we import, if we don't have a, a level playing field and we don't have fair trade, then we just undercut our farmers. And what has been so great about leading this petition has been the support that we have had from environmentalists, the support that we have had from chefs like Jamie Oliver, um, from consumer groups like which, and from farmers and consumers alike. We have got to a million people very nearly in two weeks. I mean, if that doesn't show this government how strongly people from all walks of life feel about this, I, I don't know what will. So the trouble is at the moment, there have been a lot of words, a lot of what I will call warm words, which are appreciated, but ultimately actions speak louder than words. So what we have asked for, for a long time now, and Michael Gove indeed wrote to me and said that he thought it was a good idea and it should happen, is a Trade, Food and Farming Standards Commission. Now these will be a group of, of technical experts, if you like, um, who would look at the policy roadmap for standards. I mean, there's been things like uh, antibiotic usage, both in human treatment and animal treatment, where the UK has been phenomenally successful. And that is all about how we keep our animals. And it was actually David Cameron that said, I want to lead the world. Well, the great news is we do lead the world in AMR. But if we don't carry on with what we have worked so hard to achieve, we compromise it. We compromise human health. What we cannot see is a two-tier food system in this country. You've seen all the challenges around uh, holiday hunger um, and indeed the reversal of government yesterday and how sad that it had to be reversed and it wasn't a, a natural decision. But food poverty is a real issue. Everybody in this country has an entitlement to high quality uh, British food. And if we create a two-tier system, it would be disastrous. And I'm really confident that we hopefully will achieve this Standards Commission being in place. 
And Minette, am I right in thinking that the issue with the bill is that there is uh, the, the way that standards mentioned is, is by not requiring imports to be up to UK standards. That, that's that's the issue with the bill. The, yeah, there is nothing in the bill. So you saw Neil Parrish and Simon Horbert down amendments um, that were the first um, uh, first challenge to the government, um, first rebellion since the election. Ultimately, they were defeated, but many in the House felt very, very strongly about these amendments. So the House of Lords is critical that they put those amendments down and they're very clear with what's needed. The compass test, the moral compass test of this government is whether the House of Commons will take those amendments out. That is what everybody has to be focusing on. That's what the power of this petition is all about, that the yeah. Commons does not take that amendment out. Tom, can I just ask you, from your conversations with uh, farmers and producers, um, what what so you're hearing uh, about this, this concern about imports and standards? Well, it's a mixture of, I think, outrage and resignation. I mean, I hope the resignation won't be accepted. But <clears throat> on, in terms of the food standards part of this bill, what message does this send out to British farmers saying, we're, we're, you know, you're farming to the very highest standard really really sort of you know moving towards sustainable farming but telling the rest of our don't worry you can dump all your cheap it doesn't matter about the standards send it in we don't care because don't worry about the british farmers because they're stuck to a different tier of standards it is it is unfair it's typical of government um as manette was saying of, of um government not the government it's endless sort of hollow promises and, and, and weasel words and mealy mouth pledge. And it, it doesn't mean anything. I mean, this is very, very worrying for all the high quality British producers and farmers across the country. It just shows, as Manette says, a double standard. You know, bring in the cheap stuff, undercut us, but yet British farmers are still sticking to these uh, admirable and very high standards. It's, it's one of the scariest things that's, that's faced agriculture and, and British food culture for a very long time. Yeah, and I think that we are obviously you know, worried and thinking about the impact on farmers on their livelihoods, but also in terms of where I would love to um, bring you in um, and think about what this means about having cheap food, the quality of the food, and thinking about the public health issues around that. And then maybe we can start to move into those, some of the food policy elements. Tim, you're muted at the moment. Mute yourself. Um... Well, look, I mean, the others have all said, I think, the critical issues. And I think this um, sort of understanding of what's at stake is very good for someone like me, who's worked on all of this for a very long time. It, it, it's great that we're now having a really literate and engaged discussion. And Minette's said about the NFU's one million signatures. You know, th there are others around there. This, this is very popular, indeed populist, as an issue. Um, I, I want to raise two issues. To, um, one is, what if we lose? What if the government does weasel words, pushes through the bill, um, maybe promises it might look at Manette and the NFU's idea of a commission to maybe look at these things later? Um, where will it go? Well, almost certainly, and uh, uh, you know, the others have all said it, we're going to get further fragmentation in the market. Um, it's not going to be a level playing field. But I think what it's going to mean is that we can't trust government. And probably I'm the one who can say that more than any of the others. Uh, uh, what that means is attention will focus in, and I've been saying this for a few months now, on the retailers. Whether we like it or not, the retailers are the gatekeepers of the modern food system. They're the one who set the contracts and specifications. Borough Market, Darren knows only too well. I declare I was a trustee of Borough Market. You know, we can do our little bit, the SME levels, the small and medium-sized enterprises level, and trying to raise that and you get sort of artisanal levels and high status stuff. And then it's seen as elitist or is it elitist? And you get into messy discussions like that. But we're talking about feeding 67 million people. What's the mass market? I think the, first, the point I'm making is, I think retailers will come to the fore uh, and you know watch this space. I think that's gonna become really important. Instead of us arguing, um, you know, uh, DEFRA versus uh, the, the Department for International Trade sort of dynamics, it's going to be, well, what are you gonna do, Tesco? What are you gonna do, Iceland? Which way are you gonna jump? I think that's going to be very important. The second point very quickly follows on from that, which is where do consumers sit? Now, already we're in COVID-19. 
already a very divided consumer market where the inequalities in health that are diet related are frankly shocking for the fifth richest economy in the world. And I, I write about this, as I think some of you know. Um, and I've tried to cover this in my book, Feeding Britain. What is it we want? And that's my point back, my third and last point. I think this is raising a fundamental issue about what sort of food system do we, the Brits, want. And we're still locked into a view that we've inherited from the 1820s to the 1840s. Or, or, or afterwards, what I call a sort of post-imperial and imperial legacy, where we assume someone else is going to feed us. I mean, why on earth are we even thinking about importing food from the US? Why? Why? Uh, we import 30% of our food from the European Union. That's what's feathers, actually. British farming and land use isn't addressing what we need for the environment, for, 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 for society. Uh, and that's actually the agenda that we should be discussing. We've got, well, that we will end up discussing. What do we want from our own land? How much are we prepared to pay primary producers? Why are farmers squeezed so that they're always on an intensification treadmill? We've got to get to those fundamental issues. And Angela, I'm perfectly aware we're talking about the agriculture bill, but the agriculture bill is raising all of those issues. We've got to say, what do we want from our food system? You've raised something, um, Dante, which I do want to pick up in this conversation, which is about use of the land and what we are choosing to produce on our land and um, having uh, devoured it with detail and love feeding britain um which is a tremendous book for anybody who is interested in these issues about how do we as a country feed ourselves um thinking about the the low levels of um fruit and vegetables that we grow for ourselves well minette just to come in quickly minette ought to address this um you know, I, I, as you know if you read my book and minette and i've talked about this many times you know i i think in britain we're not putting enough energy into horticulture. Now, I was born in Lincolnshire, you know, which is the fence, those are really rich lands, which have historically been big areas of horticulture. Britain's horticulture has really gone into a decline uh, for a long time. We've actually got to make that a priority area. And secondly, I'm someone who works on climate change and all the ecosystems challenges. Uh, we've got to actually build in greater resilience. It's not just Britain we've got to think about. We've got to have a more regional food system. I want to see a regrowth of horticulture across different regions. So for me, horticulture is a big priority. And I used to be a beef farmer, so you know, I'm acutely aware you can't, you can't grow pineapples on, on the Pennines. Let me just assure anyone who's listening. Uh, we, but we can. Why are we importing any apples? Why are we importing any pears at all? Why are we importing any cherries? Why are we importing cob nuts? You know, there is a vast rethink that needs to happen about I'm gonna, land use. Tim, I'm going to take those questions of. We're going to take those questions of why are we importing those things? And I'd like each of the other panels to give their take on on what that why on what that why is. Um, Minette, come to you first. Sort of look at some of that about why we import so much, the use of the land, all those things. Look, I completely agree with Tim on, on horticulture. <coughs> we tend to forget that we import so much of our fruit and veg from some of the most water-stressed parts of the world. So, you know, if we look at the pressures on South Africa, the pressures on Chile, on Spain, you know, these are... These are countries that are farming in the red and that we know climate change is putting more and more pressure on our land use. And yet here in the UK, that there is an absolute moral imperative that we produce more of our fruit and more of our vegetables here and we have <coughs> climate to do it. And we have far too much water in some places. You have a scenario at the moment where you have Wales that has been flooded in many places and Essex that hasn't seen any rain at all. So, you know, we have to be able to move water around we have to be able to get back to a far more sort of regional, local added value. I do think this is an opportunity that we have to push forwards. You know, we are a very centralized system at the moment, but you know, we have a huge population, 70 million people. I see so many false comparisons made with countries like New Zealand, less than 5 million people and the UK, they are completely different. If you have 70 million people to feed, 
you absolutely have a moral duty to be able to feed them what you are good at, what you have the climate to produce for. And we won't be growing pineapples here, nor could we, nor would we want to. And we want to be able to support those growers in other parts of the world because that is a big staple part of their economies and helping developing nations should be a, a big role of this government going forwards. But it's all about what Tim said about a government, I guess, that believes in food producers, that believes they are part of the national identity. And I talked with the Italians yesterday, and if ever there is a country that food is part of their DNA, it is part of their culture, we have a chance. And maybe there is something that can come out of our departure from the EU where we really get back in touch post-COVID with our raw ingredients, with whole foods, and we revolutionize our diets on the back of it. That to me is what success would look like. And it's, it's within our grasp, but our, our government needs to work with us and believe in that opportunity too. But the ag, grill, the ag bill, to just chip in very quickly, the agriculture bill, Minette and I, and I'm sure everyone uh, will agree, the ag bill, uh, the agriculture bill doesn't talk about food at all. Well, a little bit. Uh, what's missing, the ghost in the machine, the elephant in the room is, is food. Yeah. Um, and that, I think, is really dangerous about this bill. Um, Manette has to deal with the realities of it. I, being a, you know, ivory tower man as a professor, I can say, look, this is not addressing the big issues that Britain's got to address. It's actually a very narrow interest perspective. Um, so for me, the, the, the goal has to be sustainable diets from sustainable food systems. That's what a good food system should do. And the agricultural bill is a deviation from that, actually. So if this ag bill goes through, Minette and all of us, we've got to be campaigning and arguing, sorry, neutrally campaigning, in my own case, uh, for a, a, a food act. We need a sustainable food act. Um, and that's what I call for in my book. That has to be... if. If this bill goes through, which it will do, we've got to go for that. I Tom, I'm just going to come to you, if I may, um, and ask for your take on these issues of um, what we're choosing to produce and the use of the land and uh, what Tim's saying about uh, the agriculture bill, not really addressing those points about what it is that the food we're actually producing. Of course, you know, Tim's totally right as ever. You know, if you look at someone like uh, Patrick Holden with the Sustainable Food Trust, he comes up. Uh, with a farming system, a mixed farming system that makes sense in the long term, more vegetables, more use of pasture. Um, this is sensible, sustainable stuff. This bill doesn't take any of this into account at all. I mean, I know we live in a world where the seasons have all but disappeared. People are used to having strawberries in January um, and apples in spring. And you know what? We can't sit and wag our fingers saying how, how awful that is. That, that is life. But the point is, is this isn't just about stopping imports. It isn't some flag-waving, jingoistic, little England sort of nonsense saying, you know, damn foreigners out. No, it's not that. It just means we do not want imports coming in that do not comply to our standards. It's that simple. And the government sort of just bat it off. The government and government have no interest in food being food being health and wealth and happiness. It is so intertwined food. It is not just a bill, an agricultural bill and a piece of paper. It is, as we are realizing more and more and more, essential to, to, to our, our, our wellness, um, in the right sense of the word, our health of the planet and everything else. And this bill just, just brushes it away because it's all it's interested in is getting that deal with America, which you can understand, but it's a wrong way of going about it. Uh, is this a question, uh, innocent question to all, is this the right place to be trying to address some of these issues of food policy? Is, is, it, is this where it should be happening? Uh, Darren, should I come to you for that? Yeah, I think, I think th there's a number of things here. And I think it all really comes down to how you want to control or manipulate or encourage your food system. And I think Tim's right. It's the agriculture bill. It's not the food and agriculture bill. And that is a huge, huge gap. And let's just hope there's one coming around the corner. I doubt it, but let's hope there is. Because food is all about the way in which we as consumers have a relationship with that food because we've got very, very used to being able to go into, into uh, supermarkets and buy three identical courgettes every single week of the year, 365 days, and they're exactly and they're in a little plastic bag and they're always perfect and they're always there. And we got very, very used to that as consumers. And, and that relationship hides, that simplistic relationship of how it's presented in the supermarket hides a huge amount of interlinked challenges and compromises and 
an abuse of the environment and the background in order to be able to achieve that. And I think if you start from the principle that the market is what's going to, the free market is what's going to regulate this as they do in the States. The reason why organic food is so popular in the States is because it's the only way in which you know that there is no hormones in your beef or little hormones in your beef and you have protections from GM foods, etc. Um, if we're going to rely on the consumer and the free market making these decisions for us, I think that's going to leave a huge, huge, huge gap at the centre of what we need as a country, which is which is which is fair, which is fair, delivered, grown, uh, uh, produced, distributed, and indeed consumed, because it is it just can't be right that a civilization like ours has got so many people relying on food banks in order to be able to feed themselves. It's utterly pathetic, to be frank, when you've then got people who are buying so much each week in their weekly shop that they don't eat half of it and it goes off in the fridge and they throw it away. It's just, it's just how can that possibly ever be right? But if you leave it purely to the market, that's the outcome you're going to get, if not worse. And that's why we need to elevate the debate a little bit more um, so that we can have those really, really difficult discussions with people about exactly what they want and exactly what they want to experience from their food and exactly how they want to live their lives. Because ultimately, and this is, remember, this is one of the reasons why Borough Market became successful in the past, is because it's about trust. If the public lose trust with the way in which their food is produced, they rebel against it, and what they then do is they then come to places like Borough and others, and they say, hold on, this isn't acceptable. If you don't put labels on the produce that you're going to be importing. I get Manette's point about a level playing field and all that, but from a customer's point of view, if it's not properly labeled, if it's not properly regulated, how can we make those choices? How can we have that trust? And that is just so significant in terms of a breakdown of the relationship people have with their food, um, that it, like I said at the beginning, it's gonna take generations to fix. I think that's incredibly, incredibly well said and well put, Aaron, thank you very much. Um, I think we may even move away from the standards thing. Um, unless, Manette, um, you would quickly uh, like to give us a couple of highlights about what the issues are about the food which could be coming in. Why, you know, we've been talking a lot about, you know, think that quality and uh, you know, yeah. about, you know, hormones, things, but can you just give a couple of snapshots about what, what should people be worried about if there is lower standard imports coming in? No, I think it's really confusing for people at the moment, because obviously um, a week ago you had the, the joint letter from Liz Truss and George Eustace talking about the role of the Food Standards Agency, which of course is a government regulator. A government regulator like the FSA deals with food safety issues. What we are talking about and where our concern lies, because obviously no government is going to want to import unsafe food. So they are going to be looking at food safety. And indeed, they've been very robust on food safety. And one would hope so. What we are talking about is, is food values, is about how we keep our livestock. And probably one of the best examples with US, UK um, is, is when we talk about poultry. You know, in, in America, they have no federal legislation at all on stocking density. And this, of course, is a lot of, of why the treatment at the end, the chlorine washing, has to come in. Um, you know, we have been, as I said earlier, these world leaders in antimicrobial resistance because we have laws on stocking density. We have laws on vet med oversight. We have laws on light you know, so this is about the values that, that underpin and making sure that those aren't undermined. So it's not just about food safety. You have to take into account animal welfare and standards of production about how those animals are kept. You also have to take into account about the environment. We set an ambition to be producing climate neutral food by 2040. Now, that is going to be one of the challenges of our time. We host the COP here next year. This government has such an opportunity to provide that global sustainable footprint and blueprint, rather, and what that could look like. Why would you not grasp that with both hands? I, it's hard <clears throat> not to get frustrated and quite angry when it's seemingly not only about this country, about our leadership role in the world. And, and food actually underpins so much of, of the challenges, but the opportunities right now to do it right, to do it differently. Yeah, um, I don't know um, to what extent people can see 
the other panelists when one panelist speaking, but it's very um, heartening to see Tim Lang occasionally put his thumb up when uh, mm -hmm. to endorse what someone else is saying. Particularly encouraging for me. <laughs> <laughs> it's absolutely uh, terrific that people are, are speaking and understanding because you all come uh, from maybe the point of consensus about the bill, but from very different um, avenues at it. Um, Minette, I'm going to grab that point about the environment and move on to considering that in relation to the agriculture bill. Um, and maybe you're the best person to um, give us an insight into the changing nature of payments to farmers and how that fits in with land use and the environment. So this is, and it, it links back to what Tim said earlier, this is a fundamental change. So the CAP was really all about you had to be actively farming the land to be able to have any public investment in you. You had to effectively prove that you were an active farmer. This is a game changer within the bill because it is about public monies for public goods and you don't have to be a farmer. So you could, you know, you could come from any walk of life effectively decided to buy up land and pull down public monies for public goods. Now, this all goes back to what do you want to achieve? And it's why we felt very strongly that this must be an agricultural bill for agricultural purposes. In many cases, it would be appear to be an agricultural bill for any other purpose other than agriculture. And, and this is so, so fundamentally important because this isn't about our accession to the EU. This goes back to the 1947 Agricultural Act. And it is life-changing and if we don't get it right and and worse than that we don't appear to want to learn lessons from covid now there isn't one single person in this country who hasn't been able not been able to buy what they want when they want to buy it all of us have experienced whether it's not being able to buy pasta not being able to buy flour i only yesterday could buy um flour to make bread white flour i've been able to buy brown flour i've been able to buy white flour that's what 14 weeks on so everybody's experienced it and this is why we feel within the bill you should be monitoring food security on an annual basis not five yearly as is mentioned at the moment you should be measuring it against your self-sufficiency so that you can monitor the tale of transition and the impacts of trade and what they are doing to our farmers you also have to factor into that annual assessment how our supply chains have been functioning and how Fair, tr fair trade and fair terms of trading are working. And Tim, there's been no better advocate on this of, of the very small and ever lessening um, part of the value chain that is going back to farmers. So that you've got to look at this on an annual basis. And the moment it's all five yearly, they have to learn the lesson from COVID. I hope the House of Lords will work with us. They seem very keen to on what I would call a package of COVID amendments that are about building in resilience and monitoring this on an annual basis. How could you, why would you leave an island nation with 70 million people and you're going to review it every five years? That would be absolutely certified. <coughs> I'm just going to um, come in because I think Tim um, looks like he's dying to speak. We're getting lots of uh, thumbs up and, and uh, to what you're saying, but Tim, do you want to just chime in on that? Well, no, I was just raising my thumb because I, I agree with Manette. I think she's put it uh, absolutely spot on. I mean, this session is as we're discussing the agriculture bill. Uh, this was something that was, with respect to, to Brits, probably of no interest except to quite a small number of people, if we're honest, Manette. Mm. Um, but now the great thing is, um, you know, the hormones and chlorinated chicken stuff has really made people realize, and I think I agree with Manette, COVID 19 brought it true. Um, but I'm sort of thinking, because it's my job, you know, I, I, my, my job in the centre where I work, we, we try to look at a policy of the food system. I, I think where one thing we haven't talked about, which may be slightly shifting it, Angela, you might not want this, but it, it's not just about what's land for and how much money do farmers get, the point Manette was being nice to me about, but it's true, you know, British farmers and primary producers, fisher folk don't get much money. Actually, all the money goes elsewhere. Um, unless we reverse that, for me, a good agriculture bill would actually do, do that. It would double the amount of money that uh, goes to farmers and make sure that retailers and manufacturers can't squeeze farming into a treadmill. But the issue which I think we've also got to tack into the agriculture bill, and, and it's the, another elephant in a very crowded room of elephants, is what about Europe? 
I mean, if we look, Manette, I'm sure you will agree, if we look at what's happened in COVID-19, we've been fed by Europe. Actually, the food supply chains have carried on on the basis of the 1973 agreement when we joined the European Union. This isn't Brexit, global Britain. Um, are we seriously saying a US food trade deal will replace 30% coming from the European Union plus another 11% through trade deals done as members? I mean, I think that's laughable. No food industry that I know, or caterer even, or food service, thinks that's possible. So there's a very important issue about Britain and our identity. And we still seem to be locked in. If we're not happy about Europe, although I think half the country was, um, what are we? Going back to an empire? I mean, that's a joke. Being the 51st state of America, if you look at the end of my book, Angela, it, I, I pose this. This is a philosophical question, actually. What do we are? Yeah. Um, I don't think we should be aiming as Britain to be autarkic, you know, only feeding ourselves. But I think this long-term decline uh, that we had from 1840, the 1840s to the 1890s, that had a real shock in World War I and then World War II, Manette referred to the 1947 Agriculture Act, which said we must never do that again. We must build production. And we did. And joining the EU... Other countries had gone through World War II as well. So we were on this upward drift of production. But actually, since the mid-1980s, British food production has been going down. I, in my book, say, look, I can't resolve this. This ought to be a, a commission. This ought to be a royal commission. This ought to be a national debate. But I float 80%? I, I mean, I, why not? I think, I, I think that for food defense reasons, actually, you can tighten your belt if you're producing 80%, if suddenly you are in a very big difficulty or wars or whatever. And let's not underestimate those geopolitical issues. A yeah. country that doesn't feed itself is at risk. Um, Tom, I'm going to come to you to pick up on that, if I may, because I know that um, all through COVID, you've been um, speaking so actively to farmers and producers around the country. So can I just get your take on some of those points that Tim's been raising? And maybe also um, a little bit on the previous point we didn't quite get to you on, um, about how farmers that you're speaking to are feeling about the change in the payment systems and structures. Well, <clears throat> I'm, I'm sitting among true experts on this. And when it comes down to exact sort of mass of, of payments, I'm, I'm the wrong person to talk to. But, you know, with COVID-19, the thing about speaking to farmers and fishermen and, and butchers and all across the land was, you know, they were staring over a precipice. And somehow, thanks to a combination of the British public supporting them and them working incredibly hard to turn around their usual systems to, to, to into it, you know, moving, let's say, from a, you, you know, you're supplying lots of hotels and restaurants. Suddenly that tap's turned off. What do you do? Well, you turn to a different chain. You start, you know, you shut down your kitchens, you start doing ready meals, uh, you start selling direct and delivering direct. And it's incredible how many of our farmers have, have uh, managed under these circumstances to, 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 you know, to continue selling and to, and to continue thriving. But it, it goes back for me to a problem with food and agriculture is that government over the last 20 years just don't care they treat food as as a hobby they just the only time government pay any attention to food is when jamie stands up and says can i come and see you oh then they do it. blair you know the whole of the labor conservatives there just seems to be no votes for them in in agriculture and this is the most important thing and speaking to everyone during the during the pandemic okay. you feel that they were hugely moved by how much the british public or a huge section of the British public uh, care about British agriculture, care about knowing where their food comes from and knowing, you know, traceability and sustainability. It's no longer this sort of middle-class, finger-waggy, ivory tower business. This affects all of us. And I think what we've seen during the pandemic is how important British farming is to feeding the nation. And um, as Tim said, it's all down now to the supermarkets. And you know, but buy British for the supermarkets is often a marketing ruse. You know, it's just it's like organic. They say, isn't it wonderful? We can make a bit more money of it. We have to change the way as a nation we fundamentally feel and act about food. It's not just this bill. It's the way government and the British think about food. That has to change. Without that, we're in real trouble. Well said. Well said. Well said. Tim, I'm going to, um, Tom, sorry, I'm going to um, grab that and lead us straight into questions. We're getting a lot of questions in from um, the many, many people who are watching, um, which is just wonderful that people are so engaged with the issue. So we're going to go to, to um, 
questions and I'm going to take so someone's asking um, about supermarkets which just chimes in what you've just been saying Tom um, uh, we have gentlemen saying the supermarkets decide where apples come from they import New Zealand apples and UK apple season why and how can we stop that happening who wants to grab that somebody uh, else wants to grab it Darren you put your hand up on you go for it, Darren. so what you do is that you first of all buy unusual types of apples you think about what apples you're buying and you might want to go to somewhere that isn't a supermarket. And I'm not just saying that because I run, I run something that isn't a supermarket. I'm saying that because it can make a real difference. And, and one of the lovely things that's come out of COVID, if you can possibly say that sentence at the moment, is that people have returned back to buying veg boxes. And it isn't just like the wafty middle class. Everybody has returned back to buying vegetables uh, direct from producers, direct from farmers, direct from the fishermen. They bringing in they, the fishermen on the docks are reporting a huge upsurge in sales. So, if you want to make a real difference, don't you know the supermarket's got a huge role to play in this. Tim will talk about I think there's nine different desks that actually buy the food in this country. Um, but actually, you as a consumer can can make a huge difference uh, just simply by the way, way in which you behave and the things that you choose to buy and where you choose to buy them from. And I think, uh, yeah, no, go, go for it, Tim, yes. Uh, very good. Well, well said. I agree with that. Um, I think one of the cr critical issues, and I, I almost thought that Manette was going to say it and Tom said it earlier, but I will say it now. One of the critical issues that I think is not being dealt with by the Agriculture Bill is short chain supply chains versus long supply chains. And Darren was raising the, the, the for me, critical issue of big corporate retailing versus more diverse uh, small and medium-sized enterprises, and I think w you know we've we've got these giant um, retailers, but this has got to be a moment when we actively try to encourage culture, consumers, to encourage and build on the sorts of things that Darren was just saying there about more more local, more more supply chain, more primary producers straight to consumers, or as short supply chains. That's a really important and understated element of the food of food debate at the moment. Um, and that's actually chimes up with something which a lot of people are um, saying, um, not questioned so much, but we have a lot of people saying, well, the question is, what can they, the public, the consumer do to help to, you know, to try and influence uh, how our food is produced and the food that is available to us to buy? So maybe we should, maybe, you know, maybe we, should, we should grab that one and say, you know, what can people do you know, to help in this fight? Not particularly, especially about against or for the agriculture bill, but generally in terms of um, the food that we choose and the food that's available to us. Can I throw in just a quick yeah, thought, yeah. just to, to sort of remind people, Britain is on its on its uppers at the moment on this. We're having to start from quite a low level of of, of political and policy debate about this. But just go over the channel. Um, Thirty years ago, my namesake Jacques Lang, uh, no relative at all, but was the culture minister, began a debate that has ended up in France, and I describe this in my book, with uh, Loire d'Alimentation, uh, which basically doesn't just encourage, but mandates a percentage of local food produce. Uh, you know, unless we have and this is, the, I think, the thing all of us have agreed. The agricultural bill has got bits in it which are okay, and some principles are okay, but it's got this elephant in the room that is not dealing with food. And one of the things we've got to put in, uh, if not in the bill, into a very fastly drawn up act after it, um, has got to be something about re-regionalization of food systems. And I speak as someone who works on um, resilience of food systems, and I was a lead author of the Lancet report, one of the critical things, and I end up in my book with this, Britain doesn't have, and England doesn't have particularly, a regional approach to food. We've got to rebuild that. Italy did it, France did it, you know, we need to do that. But I think it needs legal underpinning. Excellent. Um, Darren, do you want to add anything here about um, education if that's even the right word in terms of the the consumer and the public well i think i think it's education right the way through it you know i um, i talked to some of Manette's uh lovely farmers um members uh about a year and a half two years ago now and they were they were up in uh northumberland and uh, they were describing well how can we get away from the fact these are livestock farmers how can we how can we learn from borough market and i said 
But what you need to do is you need to understand what you're producing and why it's special, uh, why it's different, why it's better. And then all of a sudden we found out that, that, that uh, through the discussion, they were grazing their, their sheep on heather um, up in the top of uh, more sides, uh, which gives a particular taste to taste the meat. That is brilliant. That puts the price from fat stock auction of, of two francs, very, very similar numbers to what we were getting when I was farming in the 80s, through to actually what we're able to sell things for in Borough and indeed what people are able to sell things through in other farmers markets. Understand the value of your product. And that's an educational thing at the beginning, at the producer, but also then there's an education thing at the retailer, whether the retailers get across that story, get across that magic of the food. And so other countries are so much better at this than we are. Uh, get across why their, their cheese is so amazing, how the regional products are, say something about the place where you're, where, where you're visiting. And then the consumer understanding really the answer to the question that's been asked. So why, how can we make a difference? And it is all about buying what you want, uh, buying, what, buying only what you need, uh, using it all, shopping regularly, understanding, understanding what you're buying um, and understanding how to, how to use that. And I think, you know, Andrew, you want a, a, a lovely Borough Market cookbook club uh, where you can learn about all these lovely things and Angela tells you what, you, what you're doing well and what you're doing wrong. I still haven't gone because I'm slightly scared of Angela uh, when I'm <laughs> cooking. Um, but it is that sort of thing. It's about getting engaged with your food. It's about being interested. And there is so much information out there. Wave your mobile phone around, guys. You've got more information about food, a bigger encyclopedia of knowledge in your hand than any person has ever had in the history of mankind. You can yeah. find things out, you can understand, and you can make a decision that really means something. Tom, um, I feel that a lot of your work is about trying to inform and educate people about their food choices and about um, smaller producers. Do you want to speak a little bit about this, about how we can do more of that? I think it's very important to, 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 to not go back to finger-waggy, patronising people, you know, saying, you don't understand, you must eat like this. I hate anything to do with being told how to do things but what you find is is when somebody for example tries i don't know uh, uh peter gott's wild boar or um daffy tilly's lamb and you just say try this and it's all about going back to what darren's saying education you try a bit and say well they say and usually people go oh wow this is amazing it tastes so good well it is a little bit more expensive why is it a little bit more expensive well it requires more work the, the beast is slaughtered at, at a later age and and everything else so you know we can all sit and say you must support the small producer but it's important to, to mix punter and producer and get them tasting and realizing why you know this food is so good and why regional food is so important it's not an academic thing it's something food is the one democratic experience we all have you know you can be celibate you can dodge your taxes you have to eat you might not like food but it is our one university experience and so therefore it is fundamentally democratic sitting down breaking bread you know with your friends or family or whatever we have to go back to, to, to the basics again, to, to, to teaching not home economics, but cookery in schools, you know, to, to understanding of, of ingredients. You know, not everyone has the money to, to, to buy uh, Peter Hammond's beef or, or, or whatever it might be, but it's, we've got to the thing where uh, chicken and salmon have become commodities. They've become cheap and people have forgotten that, that you, know, you know, cheap chicken, cheap salmon. I mean, salmon is a whole different, farm salmon is a whole different uh, um, thing. But That's not okay there. Which we won't go on to today. But the, the importance is, is, is uh, reconnecting people with the land and, and reconnecting people with producers and, and just showing people the sheer quality of British produce. I mean, you can go around the world and we've all been around the world and I don't understand why the government don't go around the world singing. You know, the Welsh, the Welsh government do, the Scottish government do, the English government don't. Um, I know we're all supposed to be under one happy umbrella, but we're not. Um, I think the government have got to do a lot more and put a lot more money into promoting British agriculture, not just across the world, but in the UK too. Brilliant. Um, we have a lot of questions we're not going to get through, but I'm going to try and put through as many as we can. Um, someone's saying, the flabbergasted that there seems to be no inter interdependency between the Agriculture Bill and the National Food Strategy. Am I missing something, this lady asks. Um, Tim, do you want to, yes, do you want to go for that? <laughs> yes, I will. Uh, I actually wrote a note. I was waiting if we had an end point to, to raise that. If, if our listeners, viewers don't know it, there is, uh, under early criticisms of the precursor to the agriculture bill, Minette knows this, um, some of us were very critical about that. Um, and um, 
uh, sort of Michael Gove, who was then the Secretary of State at DEFRA for England, in other words, not Scotland or Wales and Northern Ireland, said, oh my goodness, we've got to sort something out about that, sent for his friend uh, Henry Dimbleby, who I like a lot, respect greatly, and did a good job on, on, on the school food plan under Gove when he was at education. And, uh, and it was brought in, began to start, but then was kicked backwards. And I confess, I, with colleagues, wrote very um, tart but long emails, tart in taste, state for uh, environment, saying, where is the national food strategy? Because it's got to be brought forward. And it is now being restarted. So to answer the question, there's supposed to be a link up. But the reality is the Ag Bill is going through and is setting the terms and conditions, not least because of the trade driving politics, but the national food strategy, uh, partly, and Henry Dimbleby doesn't like me saying this, but I'm going to say it nonetheless, I think it's partly got its arms tied behind its back. It's being told it's got to fit into the trade deal thinking. It's being told it's got to sit in and fit into the agriculture bill. Um, Whereas I think actually the food should be what shapes everything because food and land use and health and environment is actually what we want land for, what we want trade for. No one that I know is against trade. The point is what sort of trade and what terms and conditions. So to summarize that in one sentence, the national food strategy is there. We've all got to watch it, help it, make sure it's bigger and better than I think the government wants it to be. In other words, create space for Henry Dimbleby and his colleagues to do good things. But at the moment, they've been pushed back, but brought back a little bit. I think not enough. I'm totally opposed to that. It should be centre ground. So there should be connections, but there haven't been yet. Excellent, thank you so much. Um, Minette, I'm gonna to come to you with a question about um, farmers. Um, someone's asking about whether or not UK farmers could, should, would um, use incentives to try and encourage uh, consumers to, to bypass cheaper imports? Use incentives to ask consumers to bypass cheaper imports? Is that the uh, Yes, that is the question. So uh, uh, I'm not too sure what kind of incentives um, is, is sort of is being suggested, but... The, the, um, look, the challenge is this, 50% um, of the value of the food market is, is retail. So, you know, that that is labelled, that is transparent actually in the way that it operates and, and you know what you are buying. There are problems often around commingling and other things, but ultimately the consumer knows what it is buying. The problems arise in, in out-of-home markets, our, our food to go, our restaurants, our pubs, whereby something can say that it is, um, you know, produced within uh, the M25, you know, Wiltshire beef, whatever, how does the consumer actually know? And this is a, a problem right now that is that is being abused in, in many cases. Um, and it's a big, big problem going forward. How do you know what you are buying is, is what it says it is. So mm. we, we do need, and I, I absolutely support what Tim's saying about a food act. We, we do need to look at, I guess, to changing the culture. And we haven't really touched on procurement, but procurement is a very important part of, of culture. And at the moment, there is very little fresh going into our hospitals and our schools because the Crown commercial contract is just set so low. So in the NHS at the moment, £3.50 for three core meals. You know, it's, it's hard to see how the journey back to health starts with a contract that is set so low. So, you know, £3 billion worth of market, that is a real game changer in culture and values and uh, and ultimately, in our schools and hospitals, what is more important than what we're eating? Yeah. Um, going to take this. I think this is probably going to be for you, Tim. Um, uh, we have someone saying, as a country, we value our NHS, and as individuals, we value our health. What role does the health lobby have in the fight for decent food, not least in battling the vast challenge of type two diabetes? Um, we don't. It's a. It's such a big issue and such a big question. We don't have bundles of time, Tim. But if no. you could. Uh, I mean, well, the answer is it's a good question and absolutely it's one of the things I think all of us have raised, uh, Tom, with great passion and rightly so, uh, coming out of the COVID-19, people really realised, you know, uh, look at it, you know, uh, our Prime Minister was 17 and a half stone, he went in, you know, uh, we know obesity is a factor in, in survivability uh, to COVID-19, we're learning more and more about it, but the country is a totally unequal uh, society, but it's also very uneven in terms of its health profiles. 
and it's uh, a socioeconomic gradient, if we use the pompous academic language, or just its social class. Um, but uh, the critical issue is that we still aren't grappling with an issue that did surface under, and I agreed with Tom and his lumping all politicians together, but it did actually surface under Labour. Um, uh, because Gordon Brown, when he was Chancellor of the Exchequer, uh, was, just saw the rising bill of the NHS and he asked a banker, Sir Derek Wanless, uh, to review it. And the conclusion of those reports in 2002-2004 was that um, the NHS would be bankrupted by food unless we got a grip and started addressing prevention. Now that's a, back to the point we've all said about culture. Uh, that means it's actually saying, you mean I, Tim Lang, or you, Angela Clutton, uh, we're not 100% responsible for our own diet and health? You mean there's a societal element to it? Yes, that is actually it. How I eat affects everyone else, affects taxpayers. Um, and I think part of the cultural change that's got to happen is a, a shift away from me, me, me and food to us, us, us and food. And I think Marcus uh, Rashford, uh, the, the, the young Manchester footballer, uh, has actually just very gently kicked that in to the policy playing field, actually, of saying it's not good enough just to say, well, poor people, are it's up to them how they eat. Uh, it's not. It's about social conditions and the infrastructure. So I come back, the older I've got, the more I think infrastructure of food is a critical issue, whether it's colleges supporting the trills and the, the skills and the training, the abattoirs. I've just tried to reply to the abattoir question, by the way. Um, you know, we've got to actually decentralize England, decentralize even within Wales. Wales is three countries. It's, it's not one, it's you know, North, Middle and South Wales. Uh, these, we've got to think much more imaginatively, I think. And I think the artisanal food movement is doing that actually. It's in the forerunner of that, it's a champion of this. Excellent. Um, we are going to be wrapping up soon, but I think we have shown that there are many complexities and many concerns around the Agriculture Bill, and it's just had its second reading in the House of Lords. It's now going to the committee stage, that's right. And so we are at a point where amendments can be tabled into it. Minette, I'm going to come to you, and because uh, I know you've been so proactive about your petition. Can you just tell us a little bit about the petition and how people can engage with knowing more or, or trying to kind of make uh, have some impact I suppose well firstly we're not quite at a million so if everybody can that's watching uh, this can engage and, and get that petition shared far and wide we need to get to a million that would be that would be really really good so when um two million two million <laughs> the petition is staying live Tim so ambition the autumn, uh, ambition minute <laughs> 10 million and that's yeah. on the National, National Farmers Union website, Minette, yes? It, it's on, you can see it widely on social media. But yes, if you Google National Farmers Union, you will find uh, the petition. So please do sign that. Um, look, we are working and having conversations with many members of the House of Lords at the moment. Um, I think, uh, in all honesty, Angela, there'll probably be two amendments that will be put down. I think one amendment, talking to the shadow team, will be very similar to... Uh, Neil Parrish's amendment as chair of the EFRA Select Committee that is a, a very robust amendment and I think the other amendment will be one asking for our commission. Now in a perfect world you'd get both in, in one amendment but I think what we have to do is make sure that we get something over the line. It's very difficult with a majority government. The whipping process last time was very robust. We cannot afford to get nothing through so we have to have two shots at this. Um, and have both approaches. But don't forget about the other things that I talked about. Those are critical amendments that must be part of this agricultural bill. Um, and, and I very much hope that the House of Commons will, will back those. There are a lot of questions asked about scrutiny. Why is this being, bill being pushed through so early on without a house that is sitting that is such landmark legislation? Um, so look, we've just got to get it right in the time that's available to us. Brilliant. I think that is an excellent way to round this off. Um, huge thanks, Tim Lang, Minette Batters, Tom Pocker-Bowles and Darren Henehan. Um, I think you have been a remarkable panel to get through all that we have in the time we've had. Um, huge thanks to all of you who watched. I hope you feel motivated um, to, to find out more and to do more. Um, and I really hope you've all enjoyed um, this special edition of our Borough Talks series. Thank you all so much. Thank you, Angela. Thanks. Thanks. Thank, Thank you, Angela. Yeah. Thank you all.
Bye bye. Bye bye.